Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to our Bible Questions podcast. Great to have you along this morning, and along with me is our co-host, Jeff. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing fine. Certainly looking forward to uh, today's discussion. Yeah, we kind of have a series of lessons that we'd like to go through that really, I think, will be very informative for those who have recently been baptized or are new Christians. One of the questions, Jeff, that all of us probably ask after we become Christians is, what should I do next? What comes next, right? What does the Lord expect of me? And so forth. And so we're starting a series of podcasts on working towards spiritual maturity. Sometimes you might hear a statement where someone would say, you know, John Smith, he sure is mature for his age. And when we hear something like that, we understand that the person's referring to the fact that this person, John, is advanced in some way for their age. So John illustrates characteristics that you might expect from somebody who's older or more experienced. Maybe John makes good decisions. Maybe he has an advanced understanding of different aspects of life. And that becomes evident through his conduct to people who are around him. It becomes evident through his speech and so forth. How about from a spiritual perspective? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? And if you've been in the church for a while or around those who are religious, if you will, or those who are really truly Christians, we probably know those who we would say are spiritually mature. So, you know, these would be Christians who have a good knowledge of God's word. They're spiritually minded. They're focused, if you will. They demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. And there's somebody that maybe a younger person or a younger Christian certainly would go to for advice, that kind of person. Well, one good example of someone that we can look at in the Bible who was spiritually mature was David when he was young. You might remember when the Philistines were threatening the Israelites, and they specifically were threatening him with Goliath, this huge man, very tall, very large, came out and mocked the Israelites, challenged anybody to come out and face him. Well, nobody wanted to face Goliath. And in fact, David's brother, his older brother, Reuben, criticized David when David basically showed courage and said, I'll go out and fight this giant. Well, David was spiritually mature enough, even at a young age, to understand that with God's assistance, Goliath was no match for him. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We won't take the time to look through all of that, but for our listeners, if you want to make a note, 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 37, and I'll just read two of the verses there where he says here, this is David speaking, he says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of this lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So here was Saul. He was the king. David goes to Saul, tells him, I'm willing to fight this man. Well, Saul probably thought the same thing that Reuben did. Like, what are you thinking, David? Well, he had faith in the Lord and he knew with the Lord's help, he could kill this man. One other thought here, I think, illustrates David's maturity, and that's when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. So for those of you that are familiar with the history of the King Saul and his reign, so after David killed Goliath, he had a great reputation among the Israelites to the point where Saul was convinced that David was going to overthrow his throne, and therefore he was trying to kill David and relentlessly pursued him to the point where David had to hide in caves. Well, there were a couple of opportunities where David came upon Saul and his men and they were sleeping and David had the opportunity to kill him. In fact, he even was able to cut part of his garment. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6, here David, after his men are encouraging him to take Saul's life and like just get it over with, he said to them, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So just another example of David's maturity. You know, a lot of men, certainly if they were being pursued, would want to just take him out and become king. But David fully respected the fact that he was anointed by the Lord and did not feel he had the right to take his life unless it was the Lord's will. So anyhow, this is just an example of spiritual maturity. And so in this series of podcasts, we want to answer the overarching question of 
after I become a Christian, what should I do next? We want to look at what does it take to become spiritually mature? And some of the questions we'll look at to answer and, and help answer this, this overall question, and that is, you know, what does God expect of me? Now that I'm a Christian, what does he want me to do? What should I focus on? How do I become spiritually mature? And what are the signs of maturity? Like how will I and others be able to tell when I am maturing or become more mature? And then what are some benefits of spiritual maturity? Not only how can it help me to be a better servant of the Lord, but how can it be helpful to the church that I'm a member of? Jeff? So let's kind of enter into our first section, which arguably is the most important one for, for starters. And that is, you know, when we become a Christian, you know, we need to realize that we have entered into an agreement with God or entered into a covenant with God. Now, simply speaking, you know, when we start talking about a covenant, basically it's a binding agreement if you will, you know, made between two parties. Now, oftentimes, these kinds of covenants, both parties will work together to kind of hammer out the terms of the agreement. Both will agree to the terms. And we see that as an example between Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 21. And these kind of agreements sometimes are called parity agreements, where, you know, they're being made between two equal parties. Now, honestly, Brian, when I use the word covenant, you know, that term might be fairly foreign to our listeners. But if we pause and think a little bit, we often use the equivalent term of a contract, you know, a legally binding agreement. And we have all kinds of those today. You know, we have them in the form of mortgage loans, for instance, that are used to buy a house or loans used to buy a car. Credit cards, debit cards all have agreements that, you know, if you want the card, here's the agreement, you abide by the, you know, the terms of the agreement, et cetera. And honestly, you may not really immediately realize it, but this kind of a contract or covenant or legal agreement is often involved between every employer and employee, or you're trading one's time and effort for a paycheck, for example, as well as in every wedding when a couple exchanges vows. And we see that kind of terminology over in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Now, when we come to the Bible and spiritual matters, it uses a very similar uh, language as well, having an agreement or a covenant with God. Now, we certainly see this illustrated in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis chapter 9, where God unilaterally promises never to flood the world again and provides the rainbow as a sign of that covenant or of that promise. Fast forward Genesis chapter 17. God makes a covenant with Abraham and of course later renews that with Isaac and Jacob, whose name was eventually changed to Israel, to bless them and in turn provides circumcision you know, as a sign of that particular agreement or that covenant. And then we get into probably one of the arguably largest covenants or agreements in the book of Exodus. So starting with Exodus 19, verse 5, and we won't read these, but I'll offer them up so people can make a note and look them up later. Exodus 19, 5, 24, verse 7, Exodus 31, verse 16, Exodus 34, verse 28. This language comes forward where God makes a covenant or agreement with the descendants of Abraham in the form of the Ten Commandments in particular and the Law of Moses in general with one of the tokens, if you're signs of that particular covenant, being observing the Sabbath. And of course, we would wrap all that up under the, you know, quote unquote, law of Moses, if you will, the covenant that God made with the Israelites. Now, more importantly, coming forward to when uh, Jesus arrived on the scene roughly 2,000 years ago, God at that point started offering a new covenant, if you will, to mankind. And, and we see that kind of terminology in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where it's the evening, last time the Jesus and the disciples are together, you know, before his betrayal and his crucifixion, where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And again, Luke 22 says, likewise, he also took this cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And that kind of terminology is repeated over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. When we come over to Hebrews chapter 8, there's a very extended passage about this covenant, this covenant that we have with Jesus as our mediator, go-between, someone who intervenes between two persons that are in disagreement, again, with a goal of trying to reconcile them. Brian, tell you what, I've been talking here quite a bit. If you would, why don't you go ahead and read for our listeners Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. 
Sure. Here it says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thank you, Brian. Now our listeners will note carefully in this passage that this quote-unquote new covenant replaces the old covenant, which is obsolete. Old covenant being law of Moses. And honestly, as a side comment, this is why things like circumcision, the Sabbath, animal sacrifices, even a separate priesthood like the Levites, tithing, unclean foods, and the rest of the law of Moses that was given to the Israelites really is no longer binding today. But you also notice that this covenant requires a voluntary choice. It's, it's a little subtle in that passage, but under the terms of the old covenant, you were physically born, you know, a descendant of Abraham, physically born into that relationship that God had with the Israelites. And then later, once you grew up, you had to be taught to know the Lord. But under the new covenant, it's interesting that you're taught first about the Lord. And then knowing about God, the Lord, Jesus, etc., you voluntarily enter into the agreement with God. And at that point, experience the benefits, if you will, or start to experience the benefits of this new covenant. Initially, of course, the, the biggest thing being having your sins forgiven by Christ's blood. Now, having said that, unlike voluntary covenants or agreements or, or contracts that we have between ourselves and others today, our covenant with God is different. And it's different in a pretty significant way. There's kind of a technical term for it, which was brought to my attention. And I'm not certain I'm going to say the word properly, but cesarean vassal. And I know people go, what? What's that? Basically, it's a kind of agreement that comes to us from ancient times where these kinds of covenants or treaties were made between a superior power and an inferior power. Now, not in terms of quality, but just in terms of a large kingdom coming into a smaller kingdom, for example. The larger kingdom maybe be Caesareans and the, the smaller kingdom or the smaller group of people, you know, being vassals. Now, in that particular kind of case, the stronger party would define the terms and conditions of the contract that the weaker party needed to comply with. And the weaker party was bound by those provisions to the point of it actually being a command. And of course, once the weaker agreed to follow those kinds of terms and conditions, it confirmed their commitment to be under the domain or rulership or under the protectorship, if you will, of this you know, superior power, which in some ways was really kind of already binding, but they agreed to go along with it. I think the key point being is, you know, we as Christians, we don't get to negotiate the terms of God's covenant. We don't get to bargain with God to, for instance, you know, we'll obey some laws, but we won't obey some of the other laws. No, it's like, here's the set of laws. Here's the covenant. Here's the agreement. Do you want to agree to it or not? And in some ways, it's more like a take it or leave it kind of thing. You know, if you want the credit card, for instance, you have to abide by the terms. You don't get to go to the credit card company and say, well, you know, I think I want to pay my credit card this way and, and not as much interest. You know, no, you don't get to negotiate that. Now, having said all that, since this new covenant that we're talking about is voluntary, well, when do we enter into it with God. And as, as Brian said, you know, a few moments ago, simply speaking, we enter into that covenant when we're baptized or immersed in water as a result of having 
believed the gospel and repented of our sins and confessing Jesus' deity, part of that baptism process, if you will, is making that commitment to abide by the terms of God's covenant. Now, Brian, once again, I've been kind of talking quite a bit. Can you take us over to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, to you know, highlight the scriptures that you know, speak to us about this change, this new covenant, and the role of baptism? Yes, here it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And so we see this kind of you know, emphasis on being joined with Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and of course, baptism, immersion, water, you know, perfectly illustrates that in kind of a physical way as well. And it's very consistent with what Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 20, where it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples or believers or followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And again, very consistent with what Paul was commanded to do in Acts 22, verse 16 by Ananias. And now why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And this is why baptism is such a key element, not the only one, but a key element of our salvation. And in some ways, you know, when we couple it with Jesus' blood, in some ways it is a sign, if you will, of the new covenant in some manner, like circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. And even on top of that, it's important to realize it's not just baptism and you're signing up to the covenant. And at that point, you're done. You know, that's the end of your journey. Your sins are forgiven, etc. That it's important to fulfill our agreement or our part of the covenant or our part of the contract, if you will, daily and live up to the terms. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, after discussing Jesus's ultimate sacrifice on the cross, you know, for our sins, as well as the new covenant, the writer goes on to describe what our blessings are from this new covenant and that those blessings are conditional. So Brian, if you will, take us over to Hebrews chapter 10 verses, starting with verse 16 down to roughly verse 31. Here it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank you, Brian. So we see, you know, starting off verse 16, 
talking about the covenant, which we mentioned in uh, previously in the podcast, coming down to verse 22, you know, a reference to baptism, our bodies being washed, and the need to hold fast the confession of our hope. And then verse 26 admits that if we continue to sin willfully after having entered into that covenant, there is no longer a sacrifice for our sins. In fact, part of that ongoing willful sinning, basically the person is counting the blood of the covenant, as in Jesus' blood, that covenant, by which he was sanctified or made holy, a common thing. It's like, yeah, common thing, not of any value. And so, you know, kind of wrapped in this passage, we see, again, the entering into a covenant. We see indirectly the role of baptism. And we see that it is not a faith-only kind of covenant. It is not a once saved, always saved kind of covenant. It's a covenant that requires our ongoing participation, our ongoing commitment, our ongoing obedience and compliance to the terms of that covenant or that contract or, or that agreement. And just what those kinds of things are, we will see as we continue in our podcast. Brian, any uh, additional thoughts before we transition into the next section? Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to go through this, Jeff. Unfortunately, we are in a situation today with a lot of religious institutions or denominations, if you will, where they'll teach that once you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, your sins are forgiven and there's nothing else that you have to do. You're saved. You can't be lost. But yet the Bible makes it very clear that this covenant requires many things. And really, they're for our benefit, aren't they? And so something certainly for us to think about and understand when we enter into that relationship through baptism. You know, our next section here, we want to talk about understanding and why it's important for the new Christian to understand that you have changed. And the Bible spends a lot of time helping us to understand that as part of this transformation, we're putting off things and we're putting on things. And so, for instance, when we talk about this covenant, you know, once we enter into this covenant with God and baptism, we no longer walk as someone in the world walks. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So when we are baptized, we are what the Bible would call a new creation. Or as we just read in Ephesians 4, they're a new man. Spiritually, we're brand new. We've been purified. We no longer have sin. It's been forgiven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So as a new creation, our former habits, our maybe prejudices, you know, fleshly desires, things that appeal to us from a fleshly perspective, they must pass away. They must be put off, if you will. So if you look at it this way, you know, as a new creature in Christ or as a new man, as we've talked about, this new spiritual man, well, we have a new view on life according to how the Bible teaches us to look at it. So now we're no longer looking at the world from the world's wisdom, from our own perspective, but we're looking at life based on how the Bible teaches that we should look at it. We have new motives. We want to serve the Lord. We're excited about the fact that the Lord has allowed us to have our sins forgiven and restore our relationship with Him. And so now we're motivated to serve the Lord and do what He would have us to do. We have new goals, you know, and they're certainly spiritual in nature and they're aligned with the good works that God established for us to do that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We also have a new master that we serve. We now serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And a few passages along this line that talk about that, the first one's in Romans chapter 6. In verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so we're changing our mindset. We're no longer going to be beholden to those things that gratify our flesh, but instead we're thinking spiritually. In fact, he goes on in Romans chapter 6 to say, beginning in verse 11, that likewise you also, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12 says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its law. So that's saying we have complete control over that. And we should understand just by the normal fleshly desires that we have, whether it be anger or jealousy or sexual desires, that we're going to have these lusts. And so we do not let sin reign in our mortal body any longer because we have now put on Christ in baptism. He goes on in verse 13 to say, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So now we are instruments or we are a tool of righteousness to God. That's how we have to view our life. I am now serving the Lord. That's my first priority. That should be how we think. And so as a result, we no longer let sin reign in our body. We put to death sin when we are baptized. One other thought here, or a couple other quick thoughts. One has to do with our body now being the temple of God. And so we're told over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So God created us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says that we were created in His image. And so once we're baptized, we're really restoring that relationship and we're belonging to God once again because we're serving Him. And so we're what we call reconciled. You know, anytime that we are in sin, we've separated. Once we're forgiven, we're brought back into a relationship with God. We call that being reconciled to God. And now we have the mindset that we're now here to do what you would have me to do, Lord. And so uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. I like how it says there, that's reasonable to expect, right? That we would have a body that's dedicated to serving the Lord and that's holy and acceptable on his terms. So we live pure lives. We're holy and acceptable. We make a sacrifice in our life by denying our fleshly desires. And you might say we become more in tune with ourselves, not just our fleshly bodies, but our fleshly minds, right? And those desires and thoughts and emotions like anger, for instance, that we can allow take over if we're ungodly or not living as God would have us to. One final section here, Jeff, and then I'll turn it back over to you, and that we must understand that we now live for Christ. So, you know, when you're in the world, you're really living for yourselves. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15, talking about Christ, it says, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So out of our appreciation for what Jesus did for us, we think that the least we can do is live for him and no longer live for ourselves. In fact, Paul said this. This was his mindset in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Jeff, do you want to read that for us? Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, and we'll see what Paul's attitude was about Christ living in him. Certainly. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul had such a wonderful attitude in the right mindset. And so he thought and felt, now that I've been baptized, I no longer live for myself, but I live for Christ. And notice he said that Christ lives in him. And of course, we understand that to mean that he lives in us through God's word, by us filling our lives with the principles from God's word and it being a part of our life, Christ lives in us in that way. And so our mindset is we now fully commit ourselves to faithfully serving the Lord. And we have passages like Proverbs chapter three, where it talks about in verses five and six, that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart. In other words, our full commitment. We do not lean on our own understanding, it says, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So that's a promise God has made. If we'll just lean on him, if we'll just acknowledge him, if we'll just allow him to direct our lives, he will direct our paths. And then it goes on in verse seven of Proverbs three to say, do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't depend on your own wisdom. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, it says. It will be health to your flesh 
and strength to your bones. And then one final passage from Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus at that time was asked what he considered to be the greatest commandment. And he said, it is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so this teaches us that we are to love God with every part of our mind and flesh. You might say every fiber of our being. And this shows him that we're completely committed to serving him faithfully. And so just a few thoughts in this area, Jeff, I'll turn it over for any thoughts that you have. Well, as you were talking, I was pretty impressed with the magnitude, if you will, of this commitment. I mean, coming back to the physical world, this is not just like getting an extra credit card, right? This is not like just you know, wanting to buy a car and getting a car loan and eventually you'll pay it off, et cetera. In some ways, it's, it's more akin to entering into a marriage which is a you know lifelong commitment according to the scriptures one person you know one man one woman for life one exception and a very a very serious far reaching commitment or contract or covenant that we can kind of begin to relate to you know in the marriage world uh, likewise you know in the spiritual world this is not a casual thing this is not a oh I accept Jesus as my personal savior kind of thing this is not well, yeah, now that I'm a Christian, you know, I'll, I'll give up a few things. It's not, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go to church, you know, Christmas and Easter a couple of times a year, whatever. It's all encompassing. It's the kinds of, as we'll see as we continue to dig through the podcast, it's our behavior. It's what we say. It's where we go. It's how we dress. It's how we think, et cetera. Very, very comprehensive in especially as you kind of wrapped up things with that love of God, with our heart, our soul, our mind, our being, our strength, etc. It is a complete and comprehensive, if I could use that term, package that in many ways should be impacting every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate you using that marriage analogy because, of course, as you know, Jesus also used that analogy, right? The bride. And he talks about that relationship in the same way, that it's a complete commitment. And just as we would in a real marriage, right? Certainly the spiritual marriage we have with Christ, we should have that same level of commitment. Oh, exactly. Now, right at the get-go, you know, that could be very, I'll say, intimidating to a person who is thinking about becoming a Christian or to a new Christian. Because a person could easily say, no, well, wait a minute. I'm just kind of beginning. I, I kind of know just enough to realize, yes, that you know, God exists and the Bible is truth and Jesus died for me. But you know, if I look at you know, all the different books in the New Testament and all the different commands and examples, I'm supposed, I, I, don't, I don't know what those are. Yeah, it could be a little scary, a little daunting, right? <laughs> oh, exactly. And certainly we don't teach that you have to know absolutely everything about the New Testament, have it memorized and understand all the commands before you, quote unquote, sign on the dotted line, going through the process and becoming baptized. But I think what that does point out, though, is the need to grow and the desire that we should have to grow. And that kind of brings us into our next section that I'll lead us off with a quote from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby just like being born in a physical sense wanting nourishment now we're talking about being born in a spiritual figurative sense wanting nourishment and of course nourishment in this context being god's word you know new testament to start that desire to start reading studying and trying to make application to our lives now, what we see, again, to continue this figurative picture of being born as, as, as children, if you will. Brian, I tell you, why don't you go ahead and read for us Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Here it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
And of course, what we see from this passage through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God setting up, you know, certain things, you know, certainly initially, you know, the apostles and prophets, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit directly, if you will. Today, we have, you know, evangelists, pastors or elders, teachers that can also be helping to equip us as Christians to build us up, to strengthen us, that we should, and I like the, the analogy here, that we should no longer be children, tossed around with different kinds of doctrine coming from different perspectives, doctrine that's blatantly false. Doctrine that looks good, looks right, looks truthful, but isn't quite trickery of men, cunning craftiness. But again, the need to grow, you know, grow up, <laughs> so to speak. And the good news is that God has given us everything that we need to grow up in terms of instruction. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's, Brian, is a quick side comment, why we keep emphasizing the Bible, keep emphasizing the scriptures, you know, keep coming back to the scriptures, you know, read the scriptures, stay the scriptures. It's also why you may not hear us say much about various creeds or various church decrees or various other man-made traditions. You know, we, we keep wanting to bring folks back to the scriptures, you know, because after all, it's the scriptures that's almost like the terms of the contract, so to speak. I mean, for instance, you know, again, going back to the physical, you know, if you want to sign up for a credit card, you know, they'll give you a credit card agreement that, you know, lays out all the terms and conditions and what they promise to do and what you promise to do and penalties and all that kind of stuff. Well, from a spiritual perspective, the scriptures are that in many ways to us. And again, you know, from a New Testament perspective. Now, again, as part of this desire to grow is the desire to wind to get to heaven, that wanting to make our, our calling, if you will, our election sure that we do want to grow in this knowledge. Brian, if you want to, why don't you take us over to Second Peter, first chapter, starting roughly verse two. Okay, yeah. Here it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Brian, in basically 10-ish verses, I mean, there's a lot <laughs> packed into there. Definitely some comprehensive thoughts there, yes. Very. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, the knowledge about, you know, God and Jesus, that he has given us everything that we need that pertains to spiritual life and godliness, you know, through this knowledge. That's what he's done. There's a number of things that we need to do as part of the covenant or as part of the contract. And that if we do them, we'll be not barren or unfruitful. That we need to do our part, that we need to be diligent to make these things certain. And if we are, you know, we'll, we'll never stumble. Now, Brian, there is so much packed in here. Uh, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners of some additional resources they have available to help unpack all of this for their benefit. Yeah, we recently went through a study series, if you will, called Adding to Your Faith with evangelist Alan Hitchin. And if you look in the previous podcast, you'll notice episodes 136 to 144 contain that series. Highly recommend those to you if you have not listened to them, because Alan goes through in detail his recommendations for how to add to your faith and literally looks at each one of these qualities, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, those sorts of things. And what that means 
and how as Christians, when we put those on, it helps us to become more spiritually mature. So I encourage you to listen to those episodes 136 to 144. Thank you, Brian. So as we kind of wrap up this particular section about a desire to grow, uh, which is based on the need to grow, the Holy Spirit through Peter, you know, again in, in Second Peter, you know, after he talked about what we just got through describing, he goes on to say in uh, the third chapter of Second Peter, beginning roughly around verse 17, where first of all, you know, the Holy Spirit through Peter warns us about you know, being untaught, warns us about being unstable. That if you're untaught and unstable, you can you know easily twist or rest the scriptures to our own destruction. He says, "You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." So once again, yet another scripture that says part of becoming a Christian. Part of this whole thing is a desire to grow, to learn, to desire the, the milk of the word. And there's other passages that talk about you know, graduating later to more meatier topics that we need to grow in both the grace and knowledge. Brian, any other thoughts before we transition? No, I think that was covered well. So let's just move on to the last section for this first part here in this series. And that is that we need to develop righteous habits. So when you think about the desire to grow, that should be coupled with developing righteous habits. So what does that mean? Well, many new converts are very enthusiastic when they're first baptized, which is great. It should make us excited to know that our sins have been forgiven, that we're standing pure and justified before God. And so we want to use this enthusiasm to start a pattern of obedience and good works. Jeff, if you could, let's take a look at Titus chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 through 8, and we'll see here what Paul had to say to Titus about this. Okay. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So when Paul wrote to Titus, Titus was in Crete, kind of setting in order what should be done in the churches. And so Paul's telling him to remind the brethren there in Crete, first and foremost, as we saw in verse one, to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. In other words, obey the laws of Crete. For us, it's obey the laws of the country that we live in. And then he goes on to say, be ready for every good work. And as new Christians, we should be ready to do what God would have us to do. And that certainly includes good work, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But notice in verse two, he now starts also talking about developing righteous habits. So in other words, not speaking evil of anyone. So it feels good if you can speak poorly for some to put others down, to complain about others. It kind of fulfills this fleshly desire, hateful and hating one another. That's what we see in the world around us for those that do not have God in their life. But I like how he says in verse four, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared toward men, not by righteousness that we've done, in other words, not by our own works, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So even though we were evil, sinful people, God, through Christ Jesus, as we see in verse 6, he poured out on us abundantly. God gave us the ability to go back to what he wanted us to be, to go back to the image in which he created us so that we could be justified and we could become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And this is pretty amazing when you think about it, because you know, all of us separate ourselves from God through sin. We don't have a right or deserve forgiveness, but yet God loved us enough that even as sinners, he is willing to forgive us. And then verse eight, here's the key point he's getting to. Titus, I want you to affirm constantly 
to the brethren in Crete and for other brethren that you come in contact, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So when we talk about developing righteous habits, we now have the mindset of how can I serve others? It's not about what they can do for me. It's now about what can I do for them? How can I make their lives better? How can I ease their burden and so forth? In fact, he goes on, Paul does Titus chapter 2. He talks in that chapter about being zealous for good works. So, Jeff, you want to read that for us, Titus 2, 11 through 14? Okay. The of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live sober, righteously, and godly in the present age, for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his special people zealous for good works. So if somebody were to ask you, well, what's the biggest difference between being just in the world and being a Christian? Verse 12 really kind of summarizes that up, right? We deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we now live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's the difference. And when we do that, we look forward to that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in other words, we now do not fear the judgment day. When we're out of Christ, when we're sinners, the judgment day should scare us because it means that we will be, if we're wicked, judged accordingly and we'll spend life in eternal punishment. But for those that are living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, well, they look forward to that because they know God has promised an eternal life in heaven if we're found faithful. And as we saw here in verse 14, God created us in his image. He has allowed us to be redeemed from our lawless deeds and has purified for himself as Christians, special people who are zealous for good works. God's people are zealous to do what's good and helpful to others. And so anyhow, this just talks about what are you know some different ways that we develop these righteous habits. One final thought here, and we'll wrap this up, and that is we have to desire to grow spiritually in 1 Peter chapter 2. It talks about part of that is, as we've said all along, we put aside things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all of that. And as you touched on, Jeff, we desire the pure milk of the word that we can grow. So just like a, a mother provides milk for her baby so that the baby can grow, well, spiritually, it's the same way. God has given us everything that we need to be righteous. And so when you think about it, it really starts with how he created us. He created us with minds that can discern between good and evil, that can understand the principles of his word. And some of you might be coming from religious backgrounds where you were told that you're not smart enough to know the Bible, and so you should rely on your pastor or your priest or whomever. And that's not true. The Bible, as we talked about earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that says it's profitable for us. And when you look at doctrine, that means how we should live according to God's laws. For reproof, you know, at times the scriptures will reprove or rebuke us when we do what's wrong. Well, it should. It corrects us. It instructs us in righteousness, as we saw in that passage. Why? That we might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the only way we're going to be thoroughly equipped is, of course, by learning God's word, but then also applying it and putting it into our life. And we see a similar thought in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where it says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So there's nothing else we need outside the Bible. And we certainly don't need some man telling us how we should live our life because the Bible's simple enough for us to understand where Jesus could say over in Matthew chapter 7 that whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like someone who builds his house on the rock. And if you have a house on a physical rock or a very strong foundation, well, we all know, as it says there in verse 25, that when you have like a you know, rain descending and floods coming and wind blows, well, that house doesn't fall because it's built on a strong physical foundation. Jesus is saying, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like that. We have a strong spiritual foundation. And then in verses 26 through 27, he says, oh, by the way, the opposite is true. If you hear these sayings of his and you do not do them, well, then you're like somebody who's building their house on a weak foundation like sand. And when these storms of life come along, we just crumble spiritually because we don't have that strong foundation. So it kind of goes without saying, not only do we need to have the desire to grow, but we have to study our Bible. And we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, the King James says, study to show thyself approved unto God, 
a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So God has given us discerning minds. God has written the Bible in such a way that it can be understood. Now we have to do our part. We have to study it. We have to understand it. And we have to apply it. And so I just want to encourage our listeners, commit yourselves to studying the Bible. Because if you don't, then you're going to make errors. You won't be able to teach others. And you'll kind of be stuck on that milk of the word, those fundamental basic principles. I'll leave us with this final thing, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over to you for any final thoughts. And that is, we have a Bible basics course where we go through a lot of these fundamentals that we've been talking about. And if you go to our website, biblequestions.org, right there on the front page, you'll see near the top a description of this course. It's called the Bible Basics course, series of eight lessons, where you can learn some of these fundamental principles and kind of start down that path of spiritual growth. So highly encourage you to sign up for that if you're interested. Well, and on top of that, I might mention that part of studying the Bible, honestly, is just setting aside the time to do it. I mean, I know some people may say, well, you know, I don't have time to read the Bible. But as we're kind of seeing here, you need to make time, need to take time. And it's not necessarily a significant commitment in terms of number of hours per day, as much as it is an ongoing kind of commitment. And the reason why I kind of say that is at our website, on the main menu, we've got a, a tab called Study Aids. If you go to that page, at the very top of the page, there are four plans that you can download. They're in PDF format that you can use to read the Bible in a relatively regular setting aside some time you know, every day. For instance, there's one plan there that allows you to read the entire New Testament with only an hour a day in a month. That's the New Testament in 30 days plan. There are three other plans where you can read through the entire Bible in a year. And depending upon whether you want to read through the Bible, you know, from cover to cover, you know, Genesis to Revelation, or whether you want to intermix, you know, an Old Testament reading with a New Testament reading, or whether you want to read the Bible in a somewhat chronological, when the events happened manner. All three of those are also available on our website you know, as an aid to encourage you to get into the Word on a regular basis to help read and study it. Brian, any other thoughts as we, uh, I think we're wrapping up uh, part one? Yeah, that will be it for part one. And I'll just add one other thought, and that is the good part about visiting our website is that we really tried to take the time to give you the resources that you need to start this spiritual journey, if you will, and to help you along the way. So. As you become more knowledgeable, you'll find more challenging subjects, more challenging studies, like we have another one on properly interpreting the Bible. So take these baby steps, but begin to grow, as you mentioned, Jeff, by reading your Bible and, and so forth. So this does wrap part one of this series. And in part two, next time, we're going to look at overcoming your surroundings. Certainly one of the challenges of becoming a new Christian is how do you continue to live in the same world, sometimes with the same friends? and yet be godly. So we'll talk about overcoming your surroundings and the challenges with that. We'll then look at walking circumspectly. We'll emphasize the fact that we should realize that we can fall away from the Lord. So we should be warned about that. And then we'll get into what are some signs of maturity. So we encourage you to come back for part two in this series. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.